Today's passage is Matthew 9, 1 through 13. 9, 1 through 13. In the Pew Bibles, if you're using that, it's page 763. The scripture we're reading is a word and a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word for Riverside Baptist Church today. Amen. Thank you, Nolan. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, that is such a sweet word that was just read. That your son has the capacity to do what he did and say what he said to this man and have it be true. That, Father, he was willing to receive the kind of people into his dinner company that he did, as we just saw. That he was willing to be merciful and kind. Lord, we thank you that your display of love was seen clearly in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we open up this text and try to see the depth of it and the vital importance of it, that you would use it powerfully in our lives as some here today, Father, have presumed to know Jesus for many years, but Lord, perhaps have never experienced the forgiveness that he truly provides. And Lord, there might be some here, Lord, who in their self-righteousness think they're fine. Lord, I pray that you would break down that wall and that, Lord, they would see their need for grace and that it will be found in your Son. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Forgiven. That is a wonderful word. I first understood that word when I was a little boy, when through my faithful family, I came to understand my sinfulness before a holy God and that I was a sinner before him and deserved his judgment. As David writes in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. As a little boy, I couldn't communicate it like that, but I knew I was a sinner against God. But God graciously opened my eyes to see that through Jesus, who died on the cross to make payment for my sin, I could be forgiven by God. And what a sweet moment it was for me when I confessed my sin before Him and trusted Jesus as my own personal Savior and Lord. So that now I can forever say, I am forgiven. How many times, I wonder, have I returned to this wonderful statement by the Lord here in verse 2 where he says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Lord said this to a sinner, and this applies to me. But this is all possible. It's all possible because Jesus is exactly who he says that he is. He is the authoritative king of both heaven and earth, and he has shown his authority with abundant clarity as we have witnessed him over these last few weeks in Matthew chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus revealed his authority over leprosy. A nasty disease that separated from people, separated people from others, and even from the worship of the one true God in the synagogues and in the temple. In verses 5 through 13, he revealed his authority by healing the servant of a Roman centurion with a mere word, showing his mercy to an enemy of Israel and hinting at his desire to bring all peoples, all kinds of peoples to himself. And in verses 14 through 17 of chapter 8, he revealed his authority by healing many others, offering a compassionate touch to a beloved mother-in-law while taking the illnesses and diseases of many others who were hurting. In verses 18 through 27, he revealed his authoritative voice his voice to those who would come and follow him, showing that even the winds and the seas obey his commands. And then last week we saw in verses 28 through 34 that he revealed his authority by going up to some demons and saying, Go! And they went. So now, in chapter 9, Jesus goes even further by relating that when it comes to sin... 
he not only can, but he is willing to forgive it. And so there's two points I want to make as we consider verses 1 through 13. Number one, King Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And we're going to see that in verses 1 through 8. And number two, King Jesus is merciful to forgive sinners. And we'll see that in verses 9 through 13. So number one, King Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. In verses 1 and 2, a miserable man is made right with God. It says, getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now it says that Jesus got into a boat and he crossed over. So probably back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says he came to his own city. And this city is almost certainly the little city of Capernaum as that town has become his ministry hub ever since chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel. And while he's there in Capernaum, some people brought to him a paralytic on a bed. Now we don't know the full nature of this man's physical disability, but as a paralytic, he was unable to walk, and he had to be carried to Jesus by other people, perhaps some close friends or even family members. And when I consider this man, I paused and just thought about this guy and his circumstances a little bit this week. As I consider this man, I have to wonder how long this guy had been in that condition. And since this was before the advancement of all modern medical care, I wonder what his man's, this man's life must have been like up until this point. It would seem, as I just try to imagine, that this guy's daily existence would have included, I'm just guessing, a lot of misery. He would have been fully dependent upon other people to carry him around every place he needed to go. There was no Americans with Disabilities Act to make things easier for him when he went out into public. Wheelchairs weren't even invented. And certainly there was very little pharmaceutical help to ease his pain or lessen his burden. So can you imagine this man's great desire to be healed? Sometimes we read these stories and we just kind of Maybe because we've read them many times, we just kind of gloss over them. But think about this man's condition as he came before Jesus that day. Can you imagine his great desire to be healed? It says in both Mark and Luke's account of this same story that his desire to be healed was so strong that his friends actually lowered him down to Jesus through the roof of that house because there were so many people in that place that they couldn't get him through the door. Probably... Scholars think that this was Peter's mother-in-law's house, Peter's home where his mother-in-law lived. And you can go there today. You can go to the city of Capernaum. You can walk in. It's not far from the synagogue. And there's this, there's this old archaeological site down below, and they built a church up above it. It looks like a UFO. It's just kind of hovering up there on stilts. And, and you go up into this thing, and you walk into the middle of this church, and there's a big glass floor. And you look down, and you can see right into it. And then all of a sudden it dawns on you, oh, this is probably pretty close to the same spot where they would have lowered this guy down. Well, upon witnessing these men, it says in verse 2 that Jesus, he saw their faith. 
Jesus was able to look right through to their hearts, evidently, and see their trust in him as the Messiah, as the one sent by God to heal and save his people. And upon seeing their faith, he pronounced to the man those wonderful words in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice something. Jesus does not heal this poor man right away. But he does tell him to take heart. Because something even greater than physical relief has happened to him due to his faith. For his sins are now forgiven. And that word sins is plural. And I think that's signifying, as it does in many other places in God's word, that it wasn't just his past sins or his present sins that day, but his future sins, all of his sins, have been forgiven by God because that's the kind of God God is. He forgives all sin for those who have faith. This is precisely why Jesus came, of course. We saw this back in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel when it told us, Matthew 1, 21, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came because of sin, to save his people from it. And this, I think, reveals how God prioritizes mankind's biggest problem. Yes, God cares about our physical suffering and our anguish in this life. And one day he is going to bring it all to an end. But God cares first about our spiritual need, our sin barrier that separates us from him. He cares about the broken fellowship. This is one reason why when a Christian prays, his or her prayer life should go much deeper than prayers for the physical comforts of others. We've all been in those prayer meetings where it's one physical ailment after another is recited and at the end you wonder, did we ever really pray for anyone's spiritual welfare? Though our pains are important to God, they are, my friends, second to spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of other people. If you can scan the examples of prayer in the New Testament, you will see that they are saturated with requests for spiritual things, faithfulness amidst trials, patience while suffering, spiritual growth through increased faith, boldness to share Jesus Christ, and such. And now, in verse 2, grasp how shocking Christ's statement was when he uttered it. Essentially, he says to the paralytic man, all those sins that you've committed against the God of heaven, they are all forgiven. Now, who could do that but God himself? And that's precisely the point that Jesus is trying to make. The answer is no one. And also notice the tight connection here between faith and forgiveness. Upon seeing faith, verse 2 says, Jesus forgives sin. This is sola fide, the doctrine of justification through faith alone. 
Jesus does not pronounce forgiveness because this man made an effort to morally clean himself up. Jesus does not pronounce forgiveness because this man was adequately obedient to the Mosaic law. No, Jesus pronounced forgiveness upon this man because this man had faith in Jesus. Upon seeing his faith, Jesus met this man's greatest need. He made him right with God. His sin barrier was removed. Now, in verses 3 through 7, Jesus revealed his heavenly authority. It says in verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Now some of the scribes, it says, were saying to themselves that Jesus was blaspheming by saying your sins are forgiven. Blaspheming, essentially it's a a number of different things, but one component of it is to make yourself on par with God. They're saying that Jesus is doing this by telling this man that his sins were forgiven. Now scribes, as we recently learned a couple of weeks ago, were some of the most learned men in the Mosaic law, and the people often went to them for teaching. And these men did, in fact, know something that was true. They knew that only God can forgive sins. In Mark's account of this narrative, they expand on this and they say, Why does this man, referring to Jesus, speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes knew the reality that only God can forgive sins. Because these scribes knew the prophets. Because Isaiah, for instance, one of the prophets said in Isaiah 43, verse 25, referring to the Lord, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Who blots out the transgressions of sinners? God and God alone. They knew this. They got that right. But... These scribes missed the crucial point about Jesus, and they therefore assumed that he was blaspheming against God when he made this incredible pronouncement about forgiveness. The point they miss is that Jesus indeed has the authority of God because Jesus is the Son of God of like nature with God and in fact is God. They had no category in their theological worldview for God to become a man in order to save men. Which means they missed the entire essence of the Mosaic Law. They missed the entire essence of the entirety of the Old Testament because it all pointed to the God-man Jesus Christ. It all pointed to Him. But verse 4 It says that Jesus knew their thoughts. This did not escape him. Jesus, as God, knew what they were thinking amongst themselves. 
He knew they missed the whole point about him, and because of this, they accused him in their hearts and their minds. Therefore, in verse 4, he indicts them for so obstinately missing the point. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? He's not light with these guys. He doesn't let them off. In other words, he says, your thoughts about me, your accusations against me are so terribly wrong that they are evil. Jesus' word. You learned men have missed the most important fact of all, and this prideful ignorance of yours is evil, Jesus says. So in response to the scribes, Jesus provides a powerful apologetic here that affirms his heavenly authority to forgive sin. And in verse 5, he argues from easy to hard. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, of course, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because the scribes had no way to evaluate the accuracy of such a statement with any evidence. They had no way to know whether forgiveness had actually been granted by God. But it was much harder to say, rise and walk, because then clear evidence would be expected. Immediately upon saying it, their eyes would look to the paralytic man and see what happens. They could then watch and tell whether Jesus was real or a fraud. So then in verse 6, Jesus drops the mic. Though you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Before, he says to the paralytic man, before other people had to carry your bed, now you go pick it up. Before others had to carry you, now you go home yourself. And in verse 7, this forgiven man did. And the crowd, in verse 8, responded just as we would expect. It says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were afraid over witnessing such an incredible display of godly power. And though they still only saw Jesus as a man given authority by God above, they glorified, it says, God that he had worked in such a wondrous way through Jesus. So what does this mean for you and for me? Well, Jesus has authority to forgive your sin against God. Realize, my friend, that your sin is your greatest problem in this life. Your sin is your greatest problem in life because your sin separates you from a holy God. The Apostle Paul, he writes later to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1, verse 21, And you, he says to Christians, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is all people everywhere. 
alienated from God, separated from God, a barrier between all people and God. Because in our minds, Paul says, we are hostile towards God and we do evil deeds against God. Our heart, our actions are all aligned against God. God. It's not just that we're separated from Him, it's that we have our arms drawn aimed at Him. We are in rebellion to Him. And this sin is the greatest problem because He is a holy God, and as a holy God, He will judge all lawbreakers. He will take those rebellious, and He will rightly, as every good judge on earth will do, He will judge them. This is a bigger problem than not being able to walk as bad as that is. But through Jesus, through Jesus, you too can be forgiven and be reconciled to God. Paul in that very next verse says in Colossians 1.22 that Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled, that's another wonderful word. It means us who have been separated, us who have been in animosity to God, have been reconciled. We have been brought near. The discord has been removed. The rebellion has been removed. And God's anger, his wrath, as we just sang, has been removed to the point that there is harmony and accord and friendship for all of eternity. And this is because, as Paul says, of the body of flesh by his death, by Jesus' death on the cross. All of God's righteous wrath that should be due you and me. It was all put upon his son at the cross to the point that he paid for your sins and my sins upon the cross so that our sins could be washed away. All of his righteous merit could be credited to our account and we could then be sons and daughters of God who have fellowship with God and know God and follow God and serve God. Because this sin problem has been removed. We've been forgiven. Jesus has authority to forgive your sins, so will you enjoy his forgiveness. Point number two. King Jesus is merciful to forgive sinners. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus brought some sinful people near to himself. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. At long last, here in chapter 9, finally, Matthew, the human author of this very gospel, enters his own account as we see him mercifully called to follow Jesus, just like other disciples were called to follow Jesus back in Matthew 4. But Matthew, and I love how he's willing to own up to his background, because perhaps that wasn't easy. Matthew has a notable distinction to the other disciples. It says in verse 9 that he was sitting at the tax booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Imagine the state of Florida or the state of Minnesota. 
Imagine the state of Florida was under the control of an oppressive foreign army who limited our freedoms and taxed our families to death to the point that we didn't have enough to eat. And now imagine some Floridians, perhaps some of our own neighbors, chose to profit from this oppression by acting as paid officials with this foreign power by collecting their harsh taxes from us. And furthermore, when these quote-unquote neighbors collect our taxes for that oppressive regime, they actually take more than they are required to take because they skim some off of the top for themselves. These were the Jewish tax collectors. They were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire, who collected heavy taxes from Jewish households, and who sometimes, sometimes took extra for themselves. They were considered bad men, and they were hated. But Jesus says to one of these guys, now keep this in mind if you feel the weight of your sin and you don't believe that God could ever forgive you. Jesus says to one of these guys, a guy named Matthew, his life is going to be so transformed that he writes a book about Jesus and, and gives his life, he even dies for the sake of Jesus. Jesus says to one of these guys, one of these tax collectors, Matthew, follow me. Now, I'm not really sure what would have been more culturally shocking in that day. Jesus saying to a man, your sins are forgiven, or Jesus saying, follow me to a tax collector. Now, imagine Matthew's thinking upon hearing this call. Let's step inside his shoes for a minute. He was hated. He was ostracized by everyone else. And apart from all the other tax collectors who I'm guessing weren't the best dudes in the world, he probably had very little friendship or warmth in his life. Evenings would have been cold for Matthew. I'm guessing Matthew probably lived without much true affection from others, and I'm also guessing he longed for some kind of forgiveness and for some semblance, some semblance of genuine love. So when Jesus the one who he had no doubt heard so much about, comes by his tax booth and says, follow me, Matthew didn't hesitate. Why did Jesus choose this guy? Well, why does Jesus call any sinner to himself? Because he's God and because he's good. Jesus called him with a welcoming grace I have to wonder how long it took the other disciples, all the other Jewish men who followed Jesus, to also show grace towards Matthew, this now forgiven tax collector. But Jesus didn't stop with just Matthew, as in verse 10, a most motley crew assembles around him, gathers to Jesus' presence. It says, many tax collectors and sinners. Understand, there was very little in Semitic culture more intimate than reclining at a meal with another person. It was the essence of neighborly or brotherly fellowship. 
You didn't do that with just anyone. But here came tax collectors, plural, and sinners to recline with Jesus for a meal. I wrote that in my Bible. I, I don't know for sure, but perhaps Matthew, in his joy, had spread the word to others that Jesus was welcoming to such people. And all of a sudden, the house is filled with people who want to know this kind of love. Now, once again, these were hated men, and they were joined by other people, probably men and women, who are publicly known as sinners, probably prostitutes, probably adulterers who were discarded, probably people who had been immoral in some grievous ways, people basically like you and me. And all of these came and they reclined at table with Jesus. My friends, do you realize what Matthew is communicating even to 21st century readers today? Hey, all you tax collectors and sinners in heart, come to Jesus because he'll recline at table with you. Because Jesus is welcoming to such people. In verse 11, the religious leaders just missed the point about Jesus once again. And when the Pharisees, it says, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, another group of Jewish religious leaders, they also failed to perceive the reality of who Jesus was and why he had come to earth. They wanted to know why Jesus ate with such people, and their question feels an awful, lot more, an awful lot more like an accusation than it does an actual question. They say, how, essentially, how dare he eat with such people? Well, to the Pharisees, the teacher of Israel was to keep separate, not just from personal sin, but also from other known sinners. Though they obviously were sinners themselves, they pridefully missed the fact that they too were separated from God and therefore their hearts were filled with self-righteousness towards other people that didn't measure up to their public stance before the rest of Israel. These Pharisees were hypocrites. And hypocrites don't eat with broken people. Hypocrites only eat with other hypocrites. And in verses 12 and 13, Jesus revealed his merciful intentions. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this time... Rather than using the mic drop of a powerful healing, Jesus responded by using profound wisdom. And in doing so, he reveals the very reason why he came to us. Sick people need doctors. Virus patients need advanced medical care. Broken people need healing. And sinners need a heavenly physician. According to Jesus, those who think they are well have no need of a physician. Not that they are actually well, for they too are sick. They just don't see their need. 
They're like sick people who stagger around and cough up a storm while insisting, I'm perfectly fine. But humbled sinners rush to recline with the good doctor from heaven in order to be healed by him. And Jesus came to treat such people. Now, I love verse 12. I love it because it reminds me that I once was not well, but found healing in Jesus. My heart was corrupted by sin, and it led me to a whole host of other sins in my lives, in my life. As, as Jeremiah the prophet says of the human heart in chapter 17, verse 9 of his prophecy, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's the most deceitful thing that there is? What's more deceitful than all other things? Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart. The human heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know it? It's so grotesque that it's worse as an abomination than anything else. This was me going my own way, arms drawn against God, ready to live a full life in animosity towards him by going my own way, which is idolatry to its core. And what's more, I needed a new heart and I needed Jesus to perform that spiritual transplant. And he came exactly as the prophet Ezekiel said he would do for the purpose of giving new hearts. Ezekiel, the prophet, says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you, this is God speaking through him, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jesus takes that old broken heart that is so rebellious with guns drawn against God and he pulls it out, spiritually speaking, and he implants this new heart from God, a new volition, a new desire, new choices, new ambitions. Jesus did that in me. So that now... Though I still so greatly struggle in my sinful flesh, I have a new heart from the good doctor of heaven, and I am forgiven by his authority through his work on the cross for me. Because he went to that tree and he shed his blood and he laid down his life, and three days later he took it back up again because he's God, and now he says to sinners like me, Amnesty. You're forgiven. It's all washed away. Come and walk with me. Now in verse 13, Jesus provides, I think, a rebuke to these Pharisees. Remember, these were some of the most learned men in Old Testament teaching. And yet Jesus tells them, catch what he says to them. He says, go and learn what this means. How many of you dads appreciated it a lot when your little boys, little girls would come up and say, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the reality. They try to teach you something. Dad, it's kind of hard to take that sometimes because we're supposed to be the teacher. Well, Jesus goes to these men who are the teachers of the land and he says, go and learn what this means. 
These guys had missed something crucial about the law, something Jesus was teaching through his care here for sinners, that God is a merciful God who loves to show mercy to sinners. And that God also wants mercy to be shown by all of his people. And Jesus relates here what God said through the prophet Hosea. This is actually a quote here in verse 13 from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, that says, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. God's greater desire, a desire greater than all of those proper sacrifices given at the temple, his greater desire was true mercy displayed towards other people. You come and offer your lambs and your goats, but you have no mercy to the people of Israel. I take no delight in that. But you show mercy to the people of Israel. Those sacrifices you make, I'm honored by them. This is the mercy Jesus displayed to sinners. He was merciful. He did not come to call the righteous. He did not come to call those self-righteous people who refused to admit their sin before God. No, he, he came to show his mercy to all of those humbled sinners who recognize him as Savior and Lord. So for us, for you, know that Jesus is merciful to forgive your sins. Jesus holds his arms wide open and he bids you, a tax collector and a sinner in heart, to come to him for forgiveness. He is the merciful God even towards the most vile wretch if they will repent and look to him in faith. Have you received his merciful forgiveness of your sins? Let me close with two encouragements and one question before we go to the table. Encouragement number one, Jesus can forgive you. He's able. Being the Son of God and having gone to the cross to make atonement for sin, Jesus, Jesus is able to forgive all of your sins all that's necessary for you to be forgiven has been accomplished by Christ so that you can now rest in the sufficient ability of this Savior to save you. So are you trusting in Him alone? My friend, only He can forgive, but He can forgive. And my second encouragement is, Jesus will forgive you if you desire forgiveness. He came for the purpose of mercy. He came to provide for the worst of the worst, for all people who recognize their terrible fallenness before God. He came for those who recognize that they have rebelled against God, but so desperately want to be restored to God. But my friends, you cannot, catch this please, you cannot receive his mercy if you don't see with eyes opened your need for such mercy. 
If you think that you're righteous, that you are well, you'll perceive no need for Jesus to do anything for you. Instead, you must see yourself for the sinner you are and look to Christ alone for forgiveness. And if you desire his mercy, it will be forgiven. Jesus will forgive you. Will you be forgiven? And then I have a question for you. Who will you tell? Who will you tell about this wonderful word, forgiveness? And this is where there's a collective groan in your minds and hearts because you realize, oh, I've not told many. But grasp, grasp the end point of this gospel. Remember all this authority that we've been seeing? The word's been used again and again. We've seen it exemplified again and again. Well, at the very end of this book, in Matthew 28, we have what's called the Great Commission. And it says in Matthew 28, verse 18, that Jesus came and he said to them, to his disciples, after he had raised from the dead, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what does the king say to his disciples? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, and here's the comfort, I am with you always to the end of the age. The authoritative king who has the authority to forgive your sins is the same authoritative king who says to his forgiven people, go tell others about my forgiveness. It is not optional if you're a disciple. This commission is for you and me to share, to teach, to build up people in Christ. Last night on my Facebook feed, I've been sticking, staying clear of Facebook a little bit, but last night I was on, and it, Facebook does that thing where it tells you, four years ago on this date, this picture happened. You posted this. Well, right away at the top of my feed, I see a picture, and, and it's, it's a post I made that says, today I was at the Ames Hospital, Ames, Iowa, waiting room. And as I was waiting, there was a man there, an aged man, probably 70, 75, who was witnessing, sharing the gospel, talking about the forgiveness of Jesus to another woman, a stranger who he had struck up a conversation with right there in that waiting room. And so I'm listening to this guy just pour out gospel. And I'm a few chairs away, and so I'm just, I'm in prayer. I'm just, I'm, God, open up her eyes. Give him boldness. Don't let him shrink away. Help him go, go, go. Lord, save this woman. And I don't remember what the response was from the woman. I, that ended. And so I got up and I went and sat down next to him. And I said, I just wanted to say, my friend, that I was praying for you, that I was praying that God would give you boldness and that he would open up this woman's heart 
And so he and I got to chatting about the Lord, and eventually I asked him his, his name, and he said, well, my name's Russ. And I said, well, my name's Joe. And I got to thinking, I'm like, well, what's your last name? And he said, my name's Russ Mossman. And I about fell off the chair. Because about 40 years before, he and another man named Ron Fry had talked my dad into doing a Bible study with him. And they shared the gospel with my dad. And he came to know Christ. 40 years. He evidently hadn't changed at all. Now, not everyone is able and good at striking up quick conversations with strangers. But every one of us, if we have Christ, we are able to various degrees to share the good news of the forgiveness of Jesus. When Jesus says, I am with you always, that doesn't mean that he's just with those who are called to preach from a pulpit. He says it to his disciples, and it's passed down from generation to the point that Jesus is with you, and he has the authority to say to you, you go and share this message. And I am humbled to see the example of a man who would do that for decades to the fact that I knew Jesus Christ, humanly speaking. I, I knew Jesus Christ because this man was faithful to my dad and my dad was faithful to me and I came to know Jesus Christ because I heard the wonderful world forgiveness. He passed it on faithfully. Will you make the necessary life sacrifices and it will require that? the necessary life sacrifices to obey Jesus by going to weak people, to hurting people, to those people who need some hope in this world? Will you go to the oppressed, to the discarded, to those people who've been neglected, to those people who are crying out for some kind of love? Will you go to the vile people? Will you go to those who have been hated and rejected by others? Will you go to your enemies? Will you go to those who speak differently than you or come from a different cultural background than you? Who will you tell of his forgiveness? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son Jesus into the world to pay for our sins, dying on the cross, that we might have everlasting life. I pray, Lord, that there would be no one who leaves this time of worship who does not know, Lord, that they have Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And I pray, Father, that no true believer in this room would leave here without a desire to be prayerfully bold in sharing the wonderful message of forgiveness over sins. And I pray this in Jesus' name.